This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 1st of December 2015, a podcast about what you do and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data. My name is Jan, and here's my co-host, Dave. Hey Jan, how are you? I'm great, how are you? Very good. So what did you do last week? So, last couple of weeks have been uh, pretty fun-packed. Um, actually had uh, quite a few things going on, but the, the things that really stood out for me were uh, I visited a customer who just come to the end of their first uh, major sort of pilot project and uh, they were very, very pleased with what they'd managed to achieve. So they uh, they were a, a telco in Europe and uh, they'd actually uh, implemented their first five um, use cases and uh, you know, a lot of stuff around uh, data movement, um, user movement across the network, um, the ability to uh, get a lot more accurate in the kind of network statistics and information they were able to get out of, of uh, you know, some standard data sources that didn't typically give them that level of granularity. So really, really good meeting, really successful pilot project, and uh, it's, that's going to go on to be uh, quite, a, quite a good, engaging uh, uh, setup there, I think. So they did five use cases for the pilot? That's what yeah. I yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it was a they 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 were sort of related, and they were only building those five use cases out of, um, I think probably four or five sets of data, like three major sources and two sort of um, smaller reference sources of data. So they weren't uh, doing a, a great deal in terms of um, ingest and that sort of thing, but they they they'd put together sort of a couple of different use cases that really as all good pilots should do really showed business value back to the rest of the organization so uh, they were uh, they were really over the moon with what they'd managed to do cool um other things that i've been doing over the last couple of weeks um we had a a, a sequel a sequel on hadoop masterclass event and uh, so we had uh, a combination of customers and partners um all in a room all learning about uh, uh, SQL on Hadoop, hands-on sort of session, and uh, that was that was really good. Actually, it was the last one of the uh, the series that we'd run across Europe, and uh, this particular one was in Stockholm, uh, a city that I I also enjoy. So it was uh, really a nice way to to round off the the series. You know, people were very very positive about uh, you know what they'd learned through the day, and I think you know as with all these things, hands-on. Hands-on experience always uh, helps to cement certain topics, and I must admit, even I certainly learned something. Uh, in fact, a couple of things through the um, through the day, and uh, I think we'll we'll touch on some of those later in the Q and A session. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that one. <laughs> Indeed, um, and then the final thing was actually uh, I did a, a keynote session at uh, one of the uh, Hadoop roadshows that this particular one in Amsterdam. And uh, that, the keynote went pretty well, and I had a, a couple of sessions in the afternoon as well. One which was sort of primarily about, uh, uh, I guess, technical progress on on the the overall Hadoop platform and new advances that were um, that were released in in the last sort of six months or so. So it was really good, really uh, great topic area. I love talking about technology and a room full of people, and so yeah, perfect perfect day. Yeah, I mean, the, the difference between a keynote and a technical session, I mean, technical sessions, I don't mind doing keynotes, I really hate. How do you feel about that? 
I think uh, it it helps when the material is um, is good and engaging. Keynotes that uh, that are maybe uh, a bit less substance and a bit more fluffer are less interesting and exciting to do. Exactly. <laughs> Anything else? No, that's those pretty much the highlights for me for the last two weeks. How about you? What's your last two weeks look like? Uh, busy as always. I mean, you've been to Norway and uh, Amsterdam. Uh, Stockholm and Amsterdam. Stockholm and Amsterdam, sorry. I went to Turkey. <laughs> I went to a customer there who's also putting up their first uh, reproduction clusters and they're actually working with Spark. And Spark in a Hadoop cluster still has some multi-tenancy issues. It's pretty hard to have different users having their own uh, notebooks up and running. So I've been working with them to get something set up with Lombardi views and everything. Mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting. It's not finished yet, but uh, they have some ideas now. So uh, by next week or so, we hope to get some uh, some advancement there. Nice. What what version of uh, Spark are they using? Uh, they're using the one four one, I think it's now. But they are already talking about using the last, the, the latest version, one five one, which was just released a couple of weeks ago, I guess. Yeah. As always, we usually want to test these things a bit first before putting it into production. But hey, if they need some functionality in there, they they should be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. From the multi-tenant point of view, it doesn't really matter. I mean, the notebook is a notebook. It doesn't matter what kind of Spark you put in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I see. I see that a lot with uh, people um, adopting Spark at the moment. Lots of people chasing the the latest versions, wanting the latest features. So yeah, it's pretty pretty common, I guess. Yeah, it's very funny actually, because when you ask the same the same people, what kind of operating system are you using? CentOS, RHEL, or Fedora? Oh, we're using CentOS, of course, or, or RHEL. We're never going to use Fedora. It's the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess there's a there's a the difference is the the perception of, of value, you know, the, and this is something I was talking to somebody earlier on this week about is if, if you look at the, uh, the, the operating system market, you know, it's, it's pretty much commoditized, you know, you can use rel, you can use CentOS, you can use you know, Ubuntu, um, you know, the, the value, yes, there's, there's some value around support, but for the most part, the operating system nowadays is commoditized. It's pretty much bulletproof, as long as you've got, you know, someone, someone or somewhere you can go to to get help if you need it, you're pretty much covered. Whereas the uh, the sort of the, the big data environments are still a little bit like the Wild West. You know, people are still trying to work out how they fit into things and how all these things fit together. And there's there's still a lot to be gained from actually, uh, uh, you know, going with someone who's properly supporting you. True, but even with OSs, you're not going to go with Fedora for a production system. Even though Fedora is a lot better than it used to be 10 years ago, it's still meant to be bleeding edge and having certain problems. So, I don't know. Of course, for an operating system, there's firmware in there. You have hardware dependencies on it. So if that doesn't work out particularly well, you might have a lot bigger problems. And if your version of Spark is too recent, well, okay, we'll just recompile with a lower version and it works again. It's no real re-engineering, re-architecting involved. So OS is a bit harder to do, I guess. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Far, far easier to, to swap one layer of Spark for, the, for another layer versus uh, swapping out your entire OS. Yeah, we even can have different versions running side by side, right? During exactly. The period, have a rolling period where you have both uh, versions of the libraries installed and used. Yep. So anyway, that was fun. Uh, what else did I do? Uh, oh, still related to Spark. There was a little webinar I was asked to do on uh, Bright Talk, it's, I think it's called. It was a thing about building a recommendation engine in Spark. The idea behind it was that a lot of the uh, events or 
talks about Spark are always talking about Spark itself and how it's set up and how it's a cluster and what you can do with it. But you never really see anybody actually doing something with it. <laughs> so my idea here was to just really develop from beginning to end a recommendation engine. It's a pretty simple application in Spark, really. Just think like uh, Netflix or Amazon giving you recommendations based on whatever you bought before using recommendations given by other people for which a model kind of deduces that they have the same taste you have. So that was a lot of fun to prepare and also to give. So that was nice. Nice. wasn't too happy with the sound quality because I had to use my mobile phone for it. But, oh, well, live and learn. <laughs> <laughs> and did you get a lot of good questions uh, in that session? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was a pretty full session. I mean, I had 45 minutes and the talk itself, I mean, we went through all the code. And even for a simple, a simple example like this, you still have some time to just go through it all. So we didn't have that much time, but uh, we had to cut it short. People were still asking questions. So that was good. People were really interested. Also afterwards, I got some emails and uh, no, it was fun. That sounds great. I, I look forward to checking that out. Yeah, please do. Give me my feedback. We'll <laughs> Everybody do. give me feedback. We'll <laughs> do. We'll do. Last thing I want to talk about is, uh, like you, I did a SQL masterclass uh, last week. Uh, mine was in Eindhoven, so nothing as uh, exotic as Stockholm. But uh, the fun part for me was that I was supposed to support that uh, masterclass. The person that was going to give it, though, at the same morning, let me know he couldn't make it. So I had about half an hour to prepare a, present, a whole day presentation, of which I hadn't even seen the presentation material yet. Now, that could have been a disaster. But the fun thing, actually, is that it was one of the best masterclasses I've done because the whole audience kind of chipped in. And we had a lot of intelligent people sitting in the audience. And we just looked at the presentation. And from my experience and what I've done before, what Dave had done before, we were able to really make it a very interesting interactive class, actually. So it was very, a lot of fun. <laughs> excellent, excellent. I was really not looking forward to it once I found out. But uh, in the end of the day, it was, uh, it was a really, as you said, I learned a lot. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it was. Uh, sounds like it all all ended up okay for you. Yeah, definitely. For everybody else, uh, also, I hope. I mean, the reactions were pretty good. I mean, there were some guys from Teradata there and Microsoft, and uh, they kind of yeah helped everybody along. That was fun. Fantastic. Well, that's all I have to talk about for my last two weeks. And if you have nothing else to add, nothing else from me. No. Then let's wrap up this section, and we'll be back in a moment with our topic for this week topic being installing a Hadoop cluster, what can go wrong? Okay, so here we have our topic for this week's podcast. Um, when you're getting started with the uh, your journey through Hadoop, uh, what can go wrong? Um, we've seen uh, quite a number of, of you know customers, clients, um, prospects, and people generally um, going through this journey. And you know, I think both of us have picked up some very strong ideas on you know the things that people do um, that make things successful, and also the things that people can do that uh, maybe. Uh, make the road a little bit more painful or uh, a little bit more uh, difficult than it necessarily should be. So um, I, one of the things that I see happening uh, more often than I would like is people's just starting too small. Um, you know, maybe they, they take a look at the amount of data that they're looking at for their initial 
um, sort of pilot project maybe and they think well I can fit all of that on you know a, a very small handful of servers you know you only need a minimum of three data nodes so let's go with that and we can probably put all the master services on on one node so you know we can put everything on on four machines and uh, that'll be fine won't it just for a, an initial pilot and uh, you know lo and behold performance generally isn't uh, isn't that great and uh, they sort of uh, they then have issues with um, you know these are these are sometimes repurposed machines so there maybe there's a, a bit of hardware failure here or there and uh, you know then things go down and just the the experience is not particularly uh, positive or productive how do you uh, how do you relate to that Jan? Well, I've definitely seen it happen. People have big plans and then they have to start putting stuff on paper and uh, clusters become the uh, incredibly shrinking cluster all the time. And in my experience, usually when they start doing that, it's like, yeah, it's just to test things out and to see if we can actually do it. And we're not going to do any performance testing on it, just want to have something to play with. But then at the end of the day, they even just playing with it, you want to know how fast is this or even better, is this fast enough? And people do start doing performance tests on way too small uh, footprints, and that never ends well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The The number of times that people start off with uh, phrases like, yeah, we're just setting this up for functional testing, we're not expecting any performance out of it, and then two weeks down the line, yeah, we we managed to, to prove we could actually execute these things, but we're really not happy with the performance of the platform. Uh, you know, happens time and time again. So it, it, uh, despite what people initially think they're going to do, people always want a certain level, a certain base level of performance out of, uh, out of the platform. So it helps to factor that in from the very beginning. Yeah, the user experience must be positive, or else you just get this slant of uh, this is a slow, ugly thing. I don't want this in my production system, whatever. And that's just too bad. And of course, if you really go small. The thing just topples over, right? If you only have a four-node cluster and you start doing big queries or in-memory analytics on it, it's just not going to stay up. And in the end, you've spent time and effort, which is money, of course, and it's totally for naught. It's totally wasted effort at that point. And talking about the finances, these things aren't so expensive to put up. I mean, refurbished material is less what less good as what you could have if you buy new stuff, but still... If it's a server that's three years old, if it's not, it's a if it's a reasonably beefy server, it should just be fine to use that. So it doesn't have to be very expensive. It just takes a bit of planning and, well, choosing the right stuff to work on. I guess. I mean, even cloud is a possibility, but then again, cloud really doesn't make things cheaper. Just a difference between capital equipment and uh, operational operational expenses, whatever the bookkeepers call it. Yeah, but still, it's all about expectation management, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think you've absolutely hit it on the head. The expectation management is uh, is really important, both on both from our side when we're assisting uh, customers, but also, you know, from the customers themselves. They've got to uh, they've got to have a reasonable level of expectation for what they're um, you know for the investment that they've put into the things. Yeah. Okay. Well, one of the things that I've seen going wrong is a bit related to this. And that's, uh, well, it's pretty close to expectation management, really. But people thinking it's going to do a lot a lot of stuff 
better or faster or whatever than it actually can do. And that's basically because they're having unre unrealistical uh, expectations because they never really did a baseline, baseline or a benchmark or whatever. They just put data on there and say, oh, this should happen in 10 minutes. Not comparing it to anything or whatever. Also, an upgrading from one platform version to another platform version, same thing happens. They just installed a new version. They've read somewhere in the marketing blurbs that this is 100% faster in all possible scenarios, but they don't even know what 100% faster is because they never had a benchmark. And of course, you have the standard benchmarks. You have the TerraSorts, TerraGen, and the DVSIOs and whatever. But those are just basic benchmarks that don't tell a company what their production is capable of. Have you seen that? Yeah, definitely have. And I think there's, again, you mentioned the uh, sort of running these benchmarking uh, exercises or baselining exercises, you know, through upgrades. It's also um, absolutely relevant just make when you're making configuration changes to environments. You know, if you change the, the yarn container sizes, you should have a really good idea of uh, of, of what that actually uh, means across the environment, not just uh, for the particular job that you're trying to fine-tune. So, you know, you mentioned uh, Terragen, TerraSort, uh, DFSIO, and things like that. Uh, I, I, I generally sort of recommend that people think about maybe 25% of their baselining exercise should be things like that. And then the remaining 75% should be um, jobs that, you know, really do represent the kinds of workloads that their organization actually runs on the platform. You know, so samples of data that are repeatable, um, you know, scripts or jobs that actually, you know, as closely as possible represent the kinds of production workloads that are going on. Yeah, that, that's pretty much what baseline means, right? doesn't exactly. mean take whatever should be valid for everybody, but take what's valid for you so you can compare your own improvements or lack thereof. Because basically, if you do an upgrade and something went wrong, you want to know that. And a TerraGen isn't going to tell you that. You want to know if your production flow still works as it should work. Exactly. And it's a bit of an investment, perhaps, but still, the gains are just as important, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, honestly, I think it's one of the things that just... It often gets forgotten about, um, you know, alongside all of the technology, and it's a standard operational thing that people need to be aware of. You know, the the uh, the often the technology kind of overshadows basic operational practices and procedures. People are so focused on new and shiny, they forget about the standard operational things that they just uh, they would do as part of a standard uh, build and standard platform somewhere else they need to bring those practices into this platform as well yeah but still standard practices i mean i've been a hadoop cluster administrator for a while and just being devil's advocate here when are you supposed to do this because you have a cluster and it's running production that's why you bought the cluster for that's why you have it in place if you want to do a proper baseline you need resource availability to actually run the job as it's supposed to run. You can't just run a 10% because that is, gives you a skewed image again. So do you then have to stop production for a day, do it in the weekend, come in at night? I mean, how do you see that happening? So the way that I've, I've generally seen this um, be executed is people have an idea of, of their sort of uh, cluster utilization over a period of time. Um, people also generally have some form of um, 
sort of update windows or modification windows or config change windows that maybe don't involve clusters going down but involve clusters um, you know they have scheduled maintenance operations windows where maybe performance will be reduced or something along those kind of lines so I think it's it's a combination of finding those periods of times when your cluster is as lightly loaded as possible and just having an automated schedule that uh, kicks things into progress during that time so maybe you pause the rest of the uh, the the queues at sort of I don't know midnight on a on a Sunday or something like that and uh, let the queues drain down and then you um, you spin up uh, a queue that you allow to burst across the entire cluster you run your um, your set of uh, benchmarks that I would you know I would typically guess would would take probably less than an hour to run through depending on what you're actually testing and then uh, you know one hour later the queues revert back to their standard uh, situations and and operations continue as normal that actually makes a perfect amount of sense because apart from the the first time you do it when you first install the cluster and you're not running production yet anyway so you can easily find a window where you can just do your baseline the next time you would have to do it would typically be after an upgrade configuration change when you already have downtime planned because you know you're changing things and you have to have some kind of a window where you can uh, that's allowing you to do this just having extending that window by i know half an hour could be enough to just run the baseline again yeah i'm also a big fan of actually doing this doing the base learning regularly as well you know having something that uh, is run you know maybe once a week maybe once every two weeks just you know for that for a one hour period just so you've got some some regular metrics that you can track um things you know as as disks fill up as nodes get get busier you know it gives you that ability to be confident that your platform is stable and sometimes you know i've seen it where people have been able to track um where issues have maybe started to occur not necessarily from the uh, metrics and information they're getting from maybe Ambari, but actually because they're starting to see changes in the level of performance they're getting from these kind of baselining jobs. Yeah, the, the gremlin factor, getting out the gremlins. Exactly, exactly. That makes sense. So, I mean, another topic that uh, that I think people, people get wrong uh, on a regular basis, unfortunately, is around um, just configuration management and what I call the kind of the waterline of configuration management where you have the you know configuration management layer that you apply to the the standard OS versus the configuration management layer that you apply to the the overall HDP or the overall Hadoop distribution stack is this something that you see a lot Jon? Um, yes and no I mean I've had People ask me, okay, this Ambari stuff, uh, all the configuration stuff on my Hadoop cluster, I need to back that up somehow. And my reaction is, why would you back it up? It's in your config management system, isn't it? What? (laughs) So I do hear that coming from them. But how will you solve it? You you don't want to have the Hadoop stuff in your basic puppet chef, whatever you have, because Ambari is, or your management tool you're using for your cluster is already doing a lot of it, maintaining it and having a puppet behind its back changing things, your Hadoop cluster management tool of choice won't be happy with that. Yeah, so for me, it's it's about defining that, that waterline. If it's 
core underlying OS properties like network settings uh, or the you know kernel settings, things like that, then those should be implemented in your your CF engine, your uh, Puppet, your Chef, whatever configuration management platform you have. As soon as you go above that sort of waterline level and you start to go up into the Hadoop distribution configuration, you know, then then really Ambari takes care of all that and your your backing up of that configuration information is essentially backing up the Ambari database because that's where all of that information is configured. The Ambari agents on the uh, on the nodes actually you know roll out that configuration information. It contains all the versioning all the comparison information you need as well. So it, it's it's about making sure that you've got a clear separation between the two different configuration management layers. And for me, most importantly, making sure that they're not kind of fighting between each other. Because as you say, that's uh, that's a surefire way to introduce instability and complication. That can, however, give a problem on the people roles. Because... Typically, in a big organization, if it's only two people, three people doing a cluster, then it's not an issue. But for bigger organizations, the people that are doing the OS configuration management uh, should take care about IP firewalls, uh, stuff like that. But something like Java's uh, IPv6. Uh, IPv6 on Java, typically you disable on a Hadoop cluster because it causes problems. That's typically an OS kind of configuration thing. Mm-hmm but will be the responsibility of a Hadoop operator to be sure it's in place. So you have two people that will both be, or two organizations, sub-organizations, departments, whatever you want to call it, that are going to be touching that same configuration management system. It might even contradict each other. For the IPv6, it's not that big an issue today, but at a certain point, that's going to become a problem. So you have to make sure you have processes in place that avoid the... Uh, OS configuration management people to override your Hadoop specific things so it's not as easy as you make it sound that's pretty much my point yeah I mean as always communication is key you've got to have these two uh, these two sets of people talking to each other otherwise uh, yeah chaos will ensue that's that common sense thing again right yeah unfortunately common sense as one of my friends says uh, doesn't appear to be very common I think I want to say that every single episode, but let's Pretty keep much. it in. Okay, uh, another topic which uh, comes up a lot and is a possible uh, cause of disaster is general backup and disaster recovery tactics. Backups are specifically a special thing in a Hadoop cluster because if you have a Hadoop cluster of reasonable size, say a couple of petabytes, putting all that on tape every night is a bit of a hassle. So when people ask me, how should I do my Hadoop cluster backup procedures. What would you, what would be your answer? Uh, yeah, it's a really really tricky one. Um, I mean the 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 general questions I ask about um, about when people are talking about backup and and disaster recovery are, well, where would you store two petabytes of data? Where would you back that up to? Uh, and typically the answer is well, we don't have anywhere to back that up. You know, there's just there is there is nowhere where we can back that up to, and so you know, that that's your initial answer for that. Well, you you're going to need somewhere to, if you really want to back up that data, then you need a secondary location, probably a secondary Hadoop cluster where you can actually, um, you can actually revert that data across to. But then, backup and DR is about more than just the, 
um, more than just the data, you've also got to ensure that the uh, the infrastructure itself is being successfully uh, backed up, and, and more importantly, that the those backups are also tested. Well, backups always work. It's the restore that's the problem, right? Absolutely. The amount of people that don't test the uh, the restoration process is sadly a, quite a, a scary percentage. Yeah, but you're quite correct, of course. The whole backup of an ACFS file system usually means disaster recovery setup more than a backup setup, having a secondary database, a secondary data center where you have all your data backed up as a duplicate. It's a much better uh, approach than just a simple backup. Actually, I've come to answering the question, how should I back it up with, yeah, Hadoop is a perfect place to store backups. Yep, yep. And, you know, depending on... um, Depending on the organization's appetite for that, you know, some organizations just go with a, a separate cluster that's pretty much identical to their uh, primary production cluster. And, you know, maybe they can use, uh, expose that to you know, maybe development users or expose it to more to kind of data science users that, that probably don't necessarily need the most up-to-date information, but they can still use the capacity and the availability of, of a secondary uh, cluster. And it means that the organization can sweat those assets for for um, more business value rather than just it being a an environment that's just there just in case. Yeah, and in that kind of situation, you might have a slightly different kind of hardware footprint, having about more disks perhaps, less performance-oriented, more storage-oriented. Definitely, definitely. The other hand, of course, could have an active passive or a dual active uh, setup where one data center does primarily batch oriented hive querying and the other one is primarily doing the real time streaming, Spark jobs, whatever. But that both have the capacity sorry, to take over from the other data center if it happens to get into trouble. Yep, yep. All these things are possible. But as you just said, the other data center for people that don't need the most up-to-date data, because that's basically the biggest issue for a data recover, uh, disaster recovery uh, setup, right? How do you get your data, these big bunches of data, in sync onto data centers if you have a latency in between of a couple of seconds, perhaps, if it's a continent uh, dispersed? And basically, how do you just make a copy of everything? Yeah, so I mean, I guess really there are there are two there are two primary options for this, aren't there? One is that you you essentially dual ingest into each platform, so the uh, the the data is heading both into your into your primary and into your standby at the same time. Um, and the kind of the second option is that you um, ingest data into your primary and replicate it across to your secondary. I guess there's actually probably a third option where you uh, ingest some data sources into your primary, some data sources into your secondary, and then you replicate those data sources from primary to secondary and from secondary to primary, depending on you know who has the ingest. And maybe full replication isn't really necessary because we all like the data lake. You can store all your raw data. But in the assumption that you need a disaster recovery not to rebuild the whole data center, but just to survive downtime in the data center, you might only have to replicate the finished products which you're actually offering to the analytics tools you're using. You don't really need to replicate everything every single time. Yeah, I mean, that, that particular topic, I, I tend to talk about the, you want to replicate the raw data and you want to replicate the finally presented data. 
but you don't need to replicate everything in between that that journey because as you say exactly you know you can as long as you've got the raw data you can reproduce the presentation data and the only reason that you wouldn't just replicate the raw data is that means the whole lot of reprocessing is required before you've got uh, availability of your presentation layer again yeah definitely now you can of course also choose to have some technology help uh, hdfs is a common component in a hadoop cluster but it can be replaced by some other things uh, there's uh, the red hat cluster file system you can put under there and there's iceland for emc and i'm probably still forgetting a couple of other ones those things already have things uh, like geo replication built in there's some downsides to going that way of course because you're kind of leaving the, the hadoop ecosystem so and for these kind of technologies i would say it's a weighing of the pros and cons how would you say yeah i think that's absolutely right and in fact i think we've had a We've had an uh, audience question coming up about that as well, so we can go into that in a bit more depth then. So another area where um, things potentially go a little bit sideways for organizations uh, tends to be leaving security until, uh, until too late. So either delaying the implementation of uh, you know, key security policies or even just not involving the security departments uh, early on in these, these initial um, forays into the world of big data, these initial pilot projects. Um, you know, security, especially data security, um, in this day and age is, is becoming more and more prominent. And I think personally, I think you're crazy if you don't uh, engage with your security teams or security part of your organization early on in the in the process. How about you, Hyung? What do you think? Yes, definitely. It's also kind of the nature of the beast of Hadoop, right? You have usually a small core people that start doing some something nice and sexy with big data, and then the security thing kind of gets in the way. But the moment they want to go into production, then they have to cross all those hurdles. And I've seen projects actually die just because of this, because it's more than just making sure people can log on or have an LDAP in the background somewhere. You also have to think about security for the data in the move, SSL encryption, stuff like that. I actually had a customer this week who's using Kafka to stream data into a uh, Kerberos cluster. Well, they go into Kerberos now, so they have a working situation. Now they want to put Kerberos in there, and uh, lo and behold, even though Kafka has support for Kerberos, it doesn't have support for secure layer Kerberos. It doesn't do SSL yet. We're expecting that to happen soon. But this is now really holding them back and they can't go on, go into production with this just because they didn't think about this. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you've got other considerations like uh, uh, encryption of data at rest uh, as well to be thinking about. So there's there's many different areas that uh, that security can be relevant here. And, you know, th- there is no doubt that Hadoop is and can be made a very secure platform. But... You know, ideally, you want to want to design it that way from the ground up. Yeah, definitely, and that does mean talking to a lot of people. Make sure those security people are involved when you plan your architecture, because they will want to know in the end, and they can actually help you. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know, you can get a a, a sign off, a, a clean bill of health from your security team. Uh, nothing will make uh, product project management uh, happier than that. Definitely. So that winds up our our section on uh, what can go wrong when you're beginning your Hadoop big data journey. Um, I hope that's helped you navigate around some of these icebergs. We'll be back next with some questions from the audience. 
last section of the podcast, we will be answering questions we receive from you, our listeners. If you have a question you would like us to answer on the podcast, please send the email to podcast at roaringelephant.org, use our Hadoopcast Twitter handle, or go to our website www.roaringelephant.org, where you can find more information about this podcast, including a contact form. The first question for today comes from a listener who wants to know where he can find a data scientist. As everybody knows, in the Hadoop environment, you really need to have these data scientists, right? Yeah, absolutely. And very rare beasts they are. Yes. Usually what I tell people at that point is uh, data scientists is basically a person that enjoys working with data and has some affinity for it, perhaps. But basically, the will to do it trumps everything. And you can go looking for people with certain degrees and having the CV that says they're a data scientist. But basically, you probably best better off getting to look at your own organization to see who you have working there, who has the open mind to approach something new from a different angle, and have those people simply grow with the cluster. They may not be the pink elephant data scientist today, but they are the best people you can have to become your data scientists. Getting somebody from outside doesn't really offer you the best possible choice. Do you agree? Yeah, so I think the for me... The, the concept around the data scientist is is all about you know having someone that has that analytical mindset um, probably has um, you know some skills in various different programming languages that they can rapidly you know cut code together that does that level of investigation but also you know has a a decent understanding of the data that uh, that they're actually looking at, and the preferably the the kind of the business problems that they're trying to get to uh, get to grip of and get an understanding of. So it's it's that it's a really difficult role because it's such a blend of different skills and technologies and abilities. Yeah, that's probably why people don't when they're looking for one. You don't really know what you're looking for until you have one. Yep. Yep. Definitely. So we we touched on um, some of the storage options uh, earlier on when we were talking about uh, backup and disaster recovery. And you know, a common question I I get is uh, around storage options for Hadoop generally. So whether people um, can just go ahead and you know use the uh, the the storage area networks, the big expensive SANs that they've uh, been putting all of their enterprise data on for the last. Uh, X number of years. Why can't they just uh, hook that into the into the Hadoop environment? Why do they need to stand up a whole new bunch of servers that have you know hard disks inside them? Surely that's uh, surely that's contrary to what uh, the enterprise has been doing for the last ten years. Yeah, that last thing is actually quite important because the whole SAN NAS uh, environment. That's what the IT people know and love today. They know what to expect from it, and they have ex- yeah, they, they can work with that. Now, certainly, we're telling them to have direct attached storage in there. Why? Now, the obvious answer for everything with Hadoop, of course, is you can use whatever you want. Everything will work. It's just that everything has its pros and its cons. And with the NAS and Asan solution, as I just said, you have the experience with it, so you're easy, it's easy to use and maintain, and you have people managing that for you. Perfect. Just make sure you have a good, a thick enough uh, network interface between your compute nodes and your storage nodes, or else that will become a bottleneck. Another thing is, if you have uh, a cluster specifically built for in-memory analytics, you do a lot of Spark jobs, then basically you need a lot of cores 
So you do need to have all the servers. And if you have all the servers anyway, well, adding a few disks might be a cheaper solution. That being said, if you already have the NOS installed, that's definitely cheaper again. So it all depends on what you have, but you can make it all work. Yeah, yeah. And I, again, I think you've you've really you've hit the nail on the head, which is it, it depends on what you've got in place. If you're, you know, as an organization, if your your chosen storage layer is something like uh, EMC's Isilon, then you know, it would be a little bit crazy to go and stand up a completely separate storage silo. But you know, meantime, if if you don't have something like that in place, then the the ability to bring the uh, the data co-located with the processing is is a largely you know what the Hadoop concept was born out of process the data where it lives. So there's there are very good reasons behind going for direct attach, and you know there can be very good, um, usually more business focused reasons for going with uh, something like a, a you know a NAS based solution. Yeah, no, obviously it also depends on what tools you're going to be using because things like Spark don't really have the concept of data locality because they do memory analytics. Indeed, very true. Okay, another question we got in. Uh, Apache Hadoop at the moment has about, uh, last count, I think, 29 components in there. Do we really have to install everything? Yeah, I mean, the answer to that is obviously definitely not. Um, keep things as simple as possible. If you're only doing some some basic uh, data ingest, some basic data manipulation, um, and uh, your your first couple of uh, SQL based reports, you probably only need you know a fraction of a number of those those initial projects. You know you could probably get by with uh, just six or seven projects um, and six or seven components of the Hadoop distribution to actually get your project up and running. So yeah, keep things as simple as possible. Uh, believe me that the environment and the ecosystem will grow uh, just very quickly all on its own without you having to force it. Yeah, definitely. And even if your use case uh, in the future should encompass everything from batch analytics and memory analytics to machine learning and streaming, keep your use case simple to start with. Just start with the data ingest and batch analytics first. And once that's up and running, you add the streaming component and just grow the cluster organically that way. This way you can learn as you go and you'll have a lot stabler environment at the end than if you just try and throw everything out there from the start. Agreed. That's about all we have time for today. I hope you enjoyed this Roaring Elephant podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode where we'll be having a discussion on general Hadoop architecture options, really continuing some of the conversation we've had today. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information Also, we're convinced you've got much more interesting questions than uh, some of the ones that we've put to ourselves. So please go to www.roaringelephant.org and submit your questions about Hadoop and big data. We'll be happy to discuss them in upcoming episodes. My name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to speaking to you in two weeks' time. Have a great time. Bye.